Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, this week, I'm pleased to have on Arthur Millick. On, um, Arthur is the executive director of the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. Previously, he was in the Center for American Studies, so a lot of American um, American in his titles. Um, and before that, he was at the House Committee of Armed Services. So um, he's been thinking about these subjects for quite some time. His works appeared in the Claremont Review of Books, the National Affairs, City Journal, and many other august places. Um, welcome, Arthur, to High Noon. Thank you very much, Inez, for having me. It's a pleasure. So I have a totally easy and no pressure first question for you. You're at the Center for the American Way of Life, which is a Claremont Institute um, um, organization, or I don't know if you technically classify yourself as a think tank. Um but the title is The American Way of Life, and, and the, the mission is preserving it. So totally easy, no co- uh, pressure question. What is The American Way of Life? Well, it's, you know, it's a good question. It's a good place to begin. Um, it has to do with uh, Republican self-government. I mean, as much as many people on the far left and the far right wish that we were a different kind of country than we are, The truth is that, you know, our only identity is really based in us being a self-governing people. Um, And what it means to preserve that way of life, I'll put just very uh, broadly, means preserving not just the institutions. That's what kind of institutionalized D.C. does well on, or it talks a lot about at least. But what it really means is preserving the habits of character and mind that are prerequisites to um, uh, preserving that way of life, to preserving uh, political liberty. So so we're really seeing those two things pull apart now, I think, and that's created a real problem for people who consider themselves small C conservative, right? This, this institutional preservation and then any kind of content um, to what it means to be an American, right? So um, no matter how 10,000 foot or broad your conception of what our, our, our regime in America really is, um, it seems that our institutions writ large are engaged at some level of attacking that idea and trying to destroy it. Um, so, I mean, where does this leave conservatives, right? Because it, it seems like um, small C conservatism that would, would be uh, the, the same people who would be interested in the importance of institutions, the importance of mediating institutions between family and government. And these are all like sort of basic uh, small C conservative principles that now seem to be working against the underlying content that the American right seeks to preserve. So, so how are those two things pulling apart and how should the right deal with that? Yeah. Well, I think that the main mission of the right is recapturing space recapturing territory for itself. That means two things. It means it has a physical manifestation, obviously. Uh, It means states primarily, a place where uh, the right can make itself autonomous from woke world. And not just autonomous in the sense of hiding in the woods. You know, I'm um, I'm in a way sympathetic to people that want to homeschool. I'm very much for homeschooling. But the, 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 the one psychological element beneath homeschooling that I think a lot of people experience is that we will pull our kids out of woke world and we'll go off into the woods and they'll never find us there. And I'm sympathetic to that sentiment. The trouble is they will find you in the woods. Um, it's not okay to just seed ground and seed space thinking that that will be a kind of romantic panacea. It won't. 
So part of it is recapturing space and states will be that power source that protects the right and allows it to uh, expand itself into territories that it didn't thought were, was possible just 10, 15 years ago. Um, I mean, just as one example of that, you know, we are going to get into this situation where states begin to enforce um, illegal immigration. I mean, that is coming. That's already at the cusp of it. Um, and I suspect that that dam at some point will be broken. And I give you that as just one example of building space of uh, expanding the influence of the right under the auspices of the state. So that's one element. Uh, the second element, however, is a kind of psychological expansion. And I think everybody feels it in the air already, but of a, a relinquishing from the, uh, the hold that leftist concepts have over us, uh, the kind of proud um, throwing off of them, I think you already see this with CRT. I mean, this was the big kind of very popularized push, but that's that's only the first level. There are many, many more things that the right will have to throw off of itself mentally if it's going to go on. Um, so that's that's a kind of very brief uh, general answer, but I think that that's where things are going, and I uh, and I encourage it. Um, I think you're you're right about and and this is kind of a an unfair shorthand for Rod Dreher's book, but I do use his phrase as a shorthand for this: the, the Benedict Option, right? Um, the idea that you can withdraw um, and create uh, like a space um, away from society, what you call running off into the woods, right? Um, the, the problem is, at least in the school context, that I've I've always sort of argued to folks who are maybe more libertarian than I was um, in education policy. I've always argued you know, <laughs> as long as 90% of kids are still going through um, largely public school um, and now even some percentage of woke private schools, I mean, those ideas are going to affect society and there's no place for your kids to go once they leave the woods, right? There's no company um, that will uh, not be operating under these these pernicious ideas, right? There's no um, sort of ecosystem for them to exist. There's nowhere for them to meet other people um, who think like them, like largely speaking, right? Obviously, these things still exist to some degree, but if if everyone in the right runs off into the woods, um, so I think you're 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 right to say that we need a staging ground. But and isn't that, isn't that just a different level of of running off into the woods? I mean, I, I kind of, I'm of two minds about this sorting. I think some of it is inevitable, but I I also have a kind of feeling that in in our federal structure, particularly as the particularly post right progressive era, the fact that we have a very, very powerful national government, um, you know, a federal agency can overrule the states and state law on such a huge swath of important things that even that doesn't seem to me to be like a a permanent solution. It just seems like a larger form of running off into the woods and to some extent. Yeah, uh, no, that's, Inez, that's a really important point. Um, And look, the way I think to analyze it is that you have to figure out the extent to which, in what ways precisely, are the states dependent on the federal tentacles. And here you get into, let's say, two or three broad categories. Uh, One is just budgetary. Now, 
The budgetary category is, I, I know that this is boring and it feels like old hand stuff, the kind of stuff that the right has been talking about for so long and never really done anything on, but it's actually new, interesting in a very new way. If you take the state of Florida, you see that about a quarter of its budget comes from the federal government and, an, and, a, and a huge majority of that is Medicaid and Medicare. So the question is how, if the goal is to dewokify yourself, not with a view to hiding, but with a view to actually creating a very strong barrier and independence, uh, how do you start to chip away at those dependencies? And I think that there are uh, ways. Um, the other form of, uh, of dependency on the federal government is the laws, various laws, especially anti-discrimination laws. That's one of these firm holds that the federal government has. Now, you're right that uh, in a way you can't really do anything about them right now. On the other hand, there are nine states that already have laws on their books against affirmative action, for example. Why aren't those states suing? Why aren't there enterprising uh, uh, state attorneys generals that are starting to sue to chip away, to chip back, to roll back that kind of authority that the federal government has illegitimately over some of those states? So there are things that can be done. Um, I will say, though, that my, my view is that rolling back federal power out of the states will have less to do with actions like that, I think, and more with the, the, the federal government humiliating itself and continuing to discredit itself, which it's, you know, made a great deal of progress on doing, but needs another push. Um, the way that we all know the intelligence agencies have behaved for the past five and probably more years I mean, these are incredible things that really are, you know, third world uh, uh, level um, intrigues against the American public. I mean, I'm from Russia. I was born in Russia. This is Russia level stuff. You know, the Russia Gate, for example, the creating, you know, a board to oversee the freedom of speech. I, I don't think that there's actually um, look, it could go one of two ways, either the right uh, submits to these kinds of things, or it becomes more and more rebellious. And I see that spirit much more in the air than the spirit of submission. And so pushing these things further and further to humiliation, um, to, uh, to making them morally collapse, because they see that the American public really is unwilling to submit to these kinds of things. I think that that coming back to the States that's the way to push this out, or that's one way anyways to push this out, which is why I don't think that this is actually, you know, a romantic project of hiding in the woods. The problem of the, the hiding in the woods, and I don't mean to, you know, implicate Rod Dreher in this. He's a smart guy, and I know that he gets a, a bad rap for that. I suspect he actually means something different, or maybe... Yeah, that's... That's why I, I, I qualified it. I, I suspect that he, he's kind of getting a, a Francis Fukuyama kind of vibe where everybody just says the end of history, um, when in fact that essay was very much not how it's interpreted. Well, so I don't mean to impugn his work generally, but I think that phrase has caught on as a description of a certain kind of withdrawal from public life. It has. And, you know, whether it's deserved or not, I, I just can't comment. But I do think that uh, there are a lot of people who have that sentiment irregardless of, of, of Dreer's position, uh, that think that they can hide. And what I'm, um, what, what I'm hoping to advise for is a spirit that is precisely the opposite, a spirit that says certain territories, certain um, moral positions, certain institutions have been taken from us illegitimately. We have been either defrauded into thinking one way or another, 
or through various kinds of leftist frauds, these institutions have been taken away from us without our consent, like our schools. And we are simply not going to submit to that. And so what I'm talking about is a kind of attitudinal disposition, one that wants to reconquer and thinks of itself as a reconquest, rather than one that says, well, so long as my life, liberty, and a little bit of meager property in the woods is granted to me, I can be happy there. I'm advising to become much more political rather than private. Um, it strikes me. I mean, people are certainly doing that with regard to to schools. Um, we've we've seen this mass movement of parents um, in the last two years start to develop. Um, there have been movements like that in the past, for example, against Common Core. Um, my my question for you is is what is the time scale of this kind of I guess what you would call it rebellion, right? Because um, it seems to me that right now. There is a lot of that spirit. Um, there seems to be whatever the vi- vice, I think, called it the vibe shift, right? There seems to be a certain amount of rebellious spirit against a lot of these doctrines, right, from the left. Um, what I'm worried about is that there's a very narrow window where that's true, because if you look at survey results, um, there's a big fat line between Gen X and millennials, right, in terms of how they feel about patriotism, how they feel about you know men and women. Um, basic facts underlying um, about the American system. I guess the the phrase to use here is the American way of life. Um, and here I get kind of frustrated with a certain type of person who says, oh, you know, the kids will always rebel. Um, yeah, the type of person who says that is frequently a contrarian, and that's frequently true about them. Um, but overall, I, if you look at these survey results, the the, the long march works right? There's a reason that all year zero movements try to capture the education system. They try to capture, you know, all of these institutions. It's because it works. If you look at the underlying views of at least a generation and a half of Americans now, um, they're radically different. And I think incompatible with what the American way of life means to um, even somebody who's, for example, in their 40s or 50s today. So what 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 is the time scale of this? And how is this sort of generational turnover factor into your strategic thinking about this? Yes, you know, that's exactly right. There is a pressing necessity to all of this. And that that attitude that you described uh, of, you know, the kind that we've heard in Washington for a couple of generations that, well, the kids... In the end, they'll get into the system and they'll be okay. Or a species of that is that, you know, oh, assimilation on immigration, assimilation, you know, will just uh, churn its course and everything will be fine. And the truth is, I don't think that that's the case at all. Uh, it's exactly for the reason that you said that uh, what will these people assimilate into? And it's very clear that they're going to assimilate broadly, not only, but broadly into blue America. Um, so this kind of um, immediate push is absolutely what we need, uh, and it's 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 what the moment demands. Um, so I don't mean to say let's just wait and see; things will end up being okay. But on the other hand, look, what we have right now is more moral authority than we've had in my kind of lifetime of, of following politics. And that's on the issue of groomers. It's, it's, it's really an astonishing thing how many people have uh, very immediately come to our side on that issue. And this is the kind of inertia that we cannot relent on. 
we always like to say, well, okay, we have this one little victory. Um, uh, let's be moderate. This is good enough for now. No, it's not. We have to play for keeps. And playing for keeps means keeping the inertia going and having very powerful, successful examples of, of points on our side. Just like with DeSantis on Disney, he won. He's going to win that. Uh, more examples like that need to follow because people like uh, victories. Uh, people, and, and you see how prepared the public is for victories. We had a conversation about this recently when the mask mandate went away. You know, given what, what the press had been reporting, what you see from the, the blue check um, maniacs on Twitter, you'd think that like half of the country at least is demanding mask mandates, is demanding mask mandates. The second the mandate went away, 95% of people took off masks. And what you end up seeing is that there's a lot less fanaticism in a way on the other side, at least in concrete numbers. And you see the same thing with the, the groomer issue. And so continuing to press that, to root these things out and to rev up the punishments. I mean, I think that there should be criminal punishments in the states assigned to doing these kinds of things to children. It's not OK. And I think that there's a huge constituency of people that will support these things. That process not only gives our side confidence, but it also clarifies the sides. If people don't want to live in a red state, in a red state that criminalizes, you know, advocating for the chemical castration of children, they can go to another state. There are plenty of other states where they can find a home where they can support chemical castration, but not in a handful of states. Building out that sphere of influence of those states, building out that self-confidence is, is, is what we're going after. And I think that this stuff can be done pretty immediately. I don't think that this is a 40 year project or even a 20 year project. This is a several year long project. Yeah. I mean, I think Florida really is the test case for this, right? And, and especially because it's a big, once moderate state. I mean, it's, it's not a small, super, super rural, super rural, um, red state, right? It, it is in, for all intents and purposes, Five years ago, Florida was an exceedingly purple state, right? DeSantis won election by a very small number of people. Um, so the fact that he can, as you say, really push this agenda and and take it to its its logical conclusion, and I mean, I'm 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 so encouraged by the the Disney stuff, right? Especially when there um, there was this article that came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, that just made me smile just uh, reading it. I, I had this ridiculous grin on my face while I was reading it, and it's about the the, the subhead was something along the lines of. Um, <laughs> board meetings taking place all across America discussing what happened to Disney in Florida, right? Um, so that gave me a lot of, of hope in, in that specific arena that actually a lot of this stuff is is sort of very, very broad and powerful, but also the commitment to it is, is quite shallow. Um, but in other institutions, like in education, I'm, I'm much less uh, sort of optimistic just because I think the, the rod is much deeper in a way. The, the woke capital, there's a reason that we are talking about woke capitalism and only have been for the last few years. And that's because there have been enough graduates now in every institution, including the Fortune 500, who are true believers. And it's starting to shape the culture. It's, it's the opposite of what the right said would happen, right? The blue haired maniacs would graduate from college. They would go off into the quote unquote real world. Um, it, lo and behold, we find that the real world is being remade. In, in their image and not the other way around. But um, the, the beating heart of this whole web, it seems to me, is the academy. Um, and, and you've written extensively on 
on universities and what ought to be done with universities. Um, you know, what both pragmatically, what do you think are sort of um, some good ideas we may not have considered in, in terms of dealing with the woke academy? Um, and and in a more deep way, I mean, how do we build alternate pipelines? Because it seems to me as long as there's no alternative uh, to this certification treadmill, which is now completely and almost almost perfectly enmeshed as an ideological credentialing system. It was once just a credentialing system, and now it's an ideological credentialing system. You know, how do we build an alternative? How do we go about, you know, guaranteeing or not, you know, to the extent that anything is guaranteed in life, that you don't have to go to one of these institutions in order to to have the good things in life, to, you know, have a happy family, to be able to make a decent income, to be able to, to pay your bills and, and live life? Yeah, well, my my view is that uh, this experiment of you know the the right effectively funding institutions that openly, relentlessly seek to do the country harm should end. The time has come to end it, and the time has come by uh, ceasing to fund these institutions. Um. The right has an enormous amount of leverage over them through that. And what I would like to happen is for the number of graduates to be reduced by, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 percent. And in a certain way, mechanically, this is not very difficult to do on the level of the states. If we win the White House, it can be done from the White House too, or it can be pushed from the White House. But but on the level of the states, look at the University of Florida. It has about a billion dollar budget annually. About a third of that comes from the state of Florida. Why? Why continue to pay for these kinds of programs? You know, so often this, the, the circumstance is this, that these are decent kind of red America parents who are patriotic, probably religious. They send their kids off. Those kids are educated on their dime because tax, their tax dollars are supporting those institutions. And then their children come back four years later, are strangers to them, maybe even hate them and hate the country. It's an unacceptable thing. The left would never tolerate such a thing. So taking away their money is one of the first order things that absolutely can be done. The second question that you ask in a way is a more important one, which is what do you do about young people who want to be happy and want to have normal lives? And I think that a lot of uh, alternatives are already emerging. But uh, my view is that the states should take that money, that $300 million or so that they take away from the University of Florida. I'm not picking on the University of Florida in particular. They're all like this. And use it to create effectively a jobs training pipeline. Um, so that same guy or gal, but especially guy, who was going to go to the University of Florida, sink a bunch of money into it, and the state was going to fund, use a lot of money to fund that, should essentially be enrolled into an HVAC program, a carpentry program, a many, many tr uh, skilled uh, programs, skills that we actually need that we say we need to open up our borders because there are no U.S. citizens that have those skills and, and, and allow them to be trained up for, you know, three, four, six months to develop those skills. Um, this is a very promising, I mean, I, you know, the left is always pointing to Europe uh, uh, for examples and, you know, our side all often, you know, 
kind of sneers at that, but the Europeans do do this. I mean, Germany has far fewer universities than we do. And part of it is that they have these kinds of apprenticeship programs. I just don't think that anybody believes anymore that you need a four-year degree while everybody knows that that degree is largely bunk, given what you learn, to do basic jobs. Um, I think that that era should be pushed over the edge. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking about going the opposite direction, though, right now. We're talking about essentially helping the universities by bailing out um, students uh, from student debt that, as you say, um, that part of the reason that people are realizing that the degree is bunk right, is is because they're graduating with, you know, sometimes six-figure debt, and they're not finding employment that is commiserate with the debt that they've taken on, um, you know, which, of course, is a, a huge pain point. You're, you'll actually never hear me say the, the line about, um, I, I really do think this is kind of generational on the right, like the essentially pull yourself up by your bootstraps line that that doesn't acknowledge that student debt is a problem. I mean, um, 20, 20 to 30 years ago, you're talking about taking on a minuscule amount of debt, um, something that might even be possible for someone to work their way, which is always what you hear from boomers, right? Work your way through college. I mean, the average university now costs about per year what the median salary is for the entire country. The idea that an 18-year-old can work that off um, is ludicrous, like financially. It, it's simply not the deal anymore. So you'll never hear me say that it's not a problem. But what I'm worried about is is this, essentially the university system has caused this problem, our subsidies have caused this problem. And what we're talking about doing is bailing out one generation from this problem and not changing anything underlying about, um, you know, the, the product that universities are offering. So um, does does the center or or do you have any hope that Republicans are, are going to find uh, some kind of spine on this issue? Because I've, I've almost lost hope on this because it seems like something that is actually not, quote unquote, new righty um, in the sense that if you're a libertarian, you should also think that these massive subsidies to universities are um, are inappropriate. They're inappropriately putting the thumb on the scale in terms of of um, what paths to success are are endorsed by the government. Um, so there's no real ideological problem with doing this, and yet not only does it not happen um, in any substantial way, but I haven't. There, there hasn't even been an attempt. So it's not even that you can get you know um, half the Republican senators to to vote for a bill that would do something substantive about cutting this flow of cash to universities. You can, you can barely get like three Republican senators to say anything about it. Um, so, so do you have hope that that is changing? Um, what kind of um, sort of not in, in the nitty gritty of the law, but what kind of um, 10,000 foot policy proposals do you think the right should be coalescing around? And the most important question, how do we make our representatives actually follow through on any of this? Yeah. Well, I think that, it's, it's just, I mean, the way that you describe it is really great and it's true that to take a step back and look at what has happened. So as the, as federal loans have now become backed, excuse me, as student loans have become backed by the federal government, um, all the universities have just increased how much money they're taking in. It's an astonishing thing. I mean, 70, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a year for a kid to get an education. It's, a, it's incredible. And you know what's happening. 
is that the universities have felt nobody is going to say no to them. And so what they've spent that money on is effectively enriching themselves, hiring their friends, hiring administrators, uh, expanding their you know absurd buildings as if you need any of that nonsense to get an education. In fact, it shows how little education is taking place uh, given the amount of buildings. It shows that that's not what the university is about. It's about amusement and uh, and other kinds of foolishness. So what I would be interested in is, well, I'm not you know proposing this as the letter of the law, but I'd be interested in some kind of compromise. I agree with you, Inez, that you know these that this money that young people are saddled with is an enormous burden. I'm not exactly sure that it really prevents them from living their lives fully. I mean, maybe it does. I, I don't know. I haven't looked into it, and I'm quite open to that. I'd be interested in some kind of compromise. Say, okay, we'll pardon student debt um, in exchange for no more funding from the federal government of uh, student loans. Um, something along those lines. And a massive part of that debt that the federal government is going to pay all the holders of that debt will be paid for by the universities who are immensely rich. I mean, they, you know, Harvard uh, is a kind of hedge fund with a couple of laboratories attached to it. Uh, That hedge fund is worth, their endowment is worth something like, I don't know, last time I checked, 30 some odd billion dollars. They should pay for some of those things. They are the ones that sent the kids into the system while enriching themselves, gave them largely a bad education, and now the taxpayer is going to bail them out. I don't think so. I would be open to some kind of compromise along those lines, so long as federal uh, backing of student loans goes away, so that if you're a student and you know you want to go to a university, you have to go to a private lender. And that private lender has to look at your grades has to look at what you're going to major in and say, yeah, I think you'll be able to pay back this debt or no, you won't be able to. I mean, that will, if that goes those ways, and I'm not naive, I don't think that, you know, it, it necessarily would. There's way too much money to make off of this. But if it would, enrollment in universities would drop by, I don't know, 60% because lenders would never give money to do a grievance study major at Wellesley. They just wouldn't. <laughs> it's funny because um, here we find it, and Arthur is usually uh, telling me that I'm a squish and I, I'm I'm uh, too beholden to the conservatism of the past or whatever. But here, I think you're being naive. Uh, I think we've gone way past that point. I think absolutely, it's it's a lucrative thing to get a um, a gender studies degree because you go straight into this ideological compliance industry. Uh, where every Fortune 500 has a huge DEI department and Michelle Obama makes 400K to be the diversity coordinator for a hospital system, right? Um, there's enormous amounts of money now in this. That's that's what I'm afraid of, actually, that even if withdrawing these loans, that we may be too late. We have we, we may have passed this point. And I don't know. I mean, it's totally possible that what you the scenario you just laid out is actually how it would go. Um, still that there really wouldn't, there aren't enough of these DEI positions, right. Um, to, to make it sort of worthwhile, but that's, that's what I'm afraid of that a lot of the solutions that I've advocated for my entire life that I, you know, firmly believe in all, a lot of these small L liberal solutions, um, that they won't work anymore, that once there's an entire apparatus constructed in the economy to actually make this lucrative, um, that it'll be very, very difficult to unwind. Uh, and let, let's let's go on that track for a little bit. I mean, 
there's some debate about the extent to which class and ideology are intertwining here, right? That, um, that there seems to be a, a sort of a monoculture among that is not shared perhaps by a strong majority of the country, but is shared overwhelmingly by people in positions of power, whether those are public and private or private, right? So you have, let's say the, the VP of a fortune 500 company and um, the top career official in a government agency. Um, and, and the third part of this, right. A, a research professor that they're all subject. They've all gone through a lot of the same schools um, they're all subject to a lot of, of the same, they have a lot of the same views, frankly, like your, your chances that those three people not only vote the same way, but are um, sort of uh, all committed to the same underlying um, ideology is, is extremely high. So to what extent is this sort of an economic or class problem? And to what extent is this a culture problem? Because I find I go back and forth in this on the one hand, uh, my my uh, sort of anti-woke Marxist friends, they seem to actually have a point in a way that 10 years ago, I thought they didn't have a point <laughs> um, about the class lines hardening. And then on the other hand, they want to say that everything is sort of downstream from economics, right? That, that the economic structure has determined, and it, it seems to me that that's missing the huge influence of, of essentially the cultural revolution in, in the 60s and 70s. But which side of that battle do you fall on? Do you think that econo- it's more economic or problems are more economic and structural in that way? Or do you think that they are primarily cultural? Yeah. Well, uh, my, my view is that these, a lot of these questions become economic once you don't really believe that you belong to a country anymore. So in other words, um, everything can be analyzed according to one's interests as part of a class. Once you see that these people are not acting as citizens of a country, as religious people, um, in other words, I actually think that it's becoming more and more true that people act according to their economic interests as that backdrop that we used to have, which is being citizens, goes away. Um, Still, I think that it's not a, 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 a wrong way of putting the matter that these people, these elites do belong to a class. On the other hand, the reason that that breaks down is that, you know, uh, a junior staff writer at the New York Times and a senior vice president at a Fortune 500, you know, they, they make a lot. Uh, uh, there's a huge difference in how much they make, how much their net worth is. So they're not just part of one economic class. They're clearly linked ideologically. And look, I'd like to analyze things by the psychology of people. Uh, I think that that's, you know, more interesting and more true. And what links them together is this kind of this twofold view. One is that there's this belief that the future is with them, that the future is a moral future that they, through their actions, will bring about. And the core belief of that is effectively that all of the liberated people, the so-called liberated peoples in America, the gay, the trans, African-Americans are really the sacred people, by which I mean that their happiness, their health, their well-being is how you measure whether this is a good country or not. 
So in other words, if African-Americans are doing badly, that means that this is a despicable, evil country that is systemically racist. Even if we can't point to individual instances of racism in law, in speech, in practices, you have to point to the broad, invisible superstructures that have caused that. And until that group or other groups are happy and feel fully themselves, this is an evil country. That's the kind of linkage that connects those two disparate economic classes into one psychologically. On the other hand, uh, to, to go back to your original question, there is some kind of monetary analysis here too. I mean, this entire growing industry of you know, blaming everything on structural racism, blaming everything on structural sexism or whatever, you know, now there are careers in that that are not just, you know, a counselor or a professor, but, you know, ensconced in the economy. And that makes matters worse because that class of people, their bread now depends on the perpetuation of those kinds of things. They must always have something to point to and say, look, racism, look, sexism, look, anti-trans, you know, phobias. Um, so, you know, it, people are motivated by these kinds of things, by these kinds of material interests. But overall, there is this fundamental religious hope that they are a part of a class that will finally restore the world to justice. Uh, I, I don't think that that I don't think that there's altogether that much cynicism in the mid part of that group. At the higher levels, I think there's cynicism. At the higher levels of the CEOs of, you know, BlackRock, Blackstone, there's a lot of cynicism about those things. They are just taking a side. Uh, they're taking a side because on the one hand, in the past 10 years, they've been pressured into it. But on the other hand, I think some of them think that the left in the end is going to win, win over the country once and for all, and they're going to have a huge seat at the table once that victory takes place. So it's this mixed bag of motives. I mean, if you want to analyze this psychologically, um, which I think is is probably one of the better ways to think about it, are, are you prepared for the backlash in a sense to the backlash? Um, because I think a lot of these folks, they really have dedicated, I mean, it is what is sort of driving them as people. It's how they see themselves, as you just said. Um, what's going to happen, not only when their bread is taken away to your point that you just, you just made, right. If, if, for example, what you, um, just said comes true and 40% of the universities are, are shut down, right. Um, when there aren't enough DEI positions where, where the, the diversity consultants, um, have to, the industry shrinks by, let's say, you know, 50% or whatever it is. Um, so not only is there going to be actually people losing their jobs and, and being upset about that. You know, this, this woke ideology, which is not a great terminology, but it's all, all I, I've got. Um, it's, it's fundamentally at odds with a bunch of things about reality. And what I've found is as soon as some element of reality creeps in, um, inevitably there's this psychological backlash against it and and almost like hysterical i mean you can make you can make fun of the the screeching blue hairs or whatever there's a lot of memes like that but there's a reason that people psychologically react that way i think what you mentioned before about the groomers and the um the groomer discourse around in k-12 sometimes misses this element that that actually in large part what these kids are being groomed to do um is less actually, at least in, in the vast majority of cases, fortunately not, you know, have sex with adults, um, but 
to become activists and to reflect back to their teachers or the, the adults um, sort of their own delusions about the world uh, because kids don't know how the world works yet. So they're a very convenient uh, sort of mirror for people who really need to keep these psychological commitments that are at odds with reality. So, I mean, how, how do you deal with, if the right starts to succeed in, in a real way, you know, how do you deal with the psychological backlash from people who did think that they were just on the march of history and that their place to, to the language you just used, their place at the table of the, the, you know, the new, the new dawn was, was sort of assured. Yes. Well, this is how they reacted for four years with Trump. So in other words, um, they thought that uh, once and for all, they had won in this country and anything, anything implying that there's either a change of power or ruling and being ruled, taking turns, or that there's doubt in the American public that uh, that, that program is for them, the program that the left is proposing, there is all out, not just hysteria, but immense institutional power that will be used to sow doubts, to humiliate, uh, will be used to, uh, for subterfuge. I mean, the amount of leaks from inside the intelligence agencies against the president is just one you know, instance of that. Um, and they largely got away with it. Nobody was punished. Uh, and it worked. So your point is very well taken. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, I am heartened by what DeSantis is doing with Disney. I mean, Disney has shut its mouth. Uh, and I don't think it's going to pipe up anytime soon. Now, the question would be, well, has anything actually changed? Will anything change there in Disney on account of these actions? Maybe, maybe not. We don't yet know. It's an open question. But there are circumstances where your thesis is totally right. And there are circumstances that are more hopeful than you imply. More broad. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I just, I think each, that's why I'm way more generally, I tend to be way more pessimistic about the education system and much yeah. more optimistic now, especially post Disney about scaring capital straight yeah. <laughs> in, in a way. So, but uh, you, you are totally right that there are, you know, there, there's a class in the country whose lives depend on these kinds of activities. And my view is that they don't belong in the space that traditional America owns. And uh, they can find greener pastures where that kind of employment is possible in other states that are friendly to these kinds of things. I see calls on Twitter. I mean, recently, actually, once this Disney situation was developing where, you know, people were saying, you know, you're, you know, you're pro trans, just to use that example, uh, opinions will be supported in Illinois, California, New York. Um, you should go there. And I agree. You know, uh, I, I totally agree. You should try and rebuild those post-industrial states that are not doing very well, those cities that are not doing well. I'm afraid that it won't be through those means that they think uh, it'll happen. But, you know, you should live among the people that, you know, support you and respect you. And the right should have the right to do the same thing without being relentlessly antagonized and persecuted on its own territory. Um, so there will be, to answer your question, Inez, there will be an outlet 
you know, uh, where uh, where these people can find, you know, employment. Um, you know, I, I guess the worry with what you just said would be what's what's the end state of this? Right. Um, is it some kind of national divorce? Because even though our federalist system allows for plenty of uh, sort of variation, and, and I think that's a, a good thing. I think it's one of the strengths of the federalist system that it does allow people with somewhat different values to kind of live amongst their own. And, and that generally turns down the temperature and not up um, on, on national politics when you can um, control, for example, your kid's school, right? Um, versus you, you care a lot less about what what is being set in terms of national education policy if your kids don't have to uh, you know, follow whatever that is, right? So it's generally it's generally a good thing, but at what point are we just two separate nations, right? Um, I mean, obviously we we've faced this problem before. We couldn't exist as as half free and half slave. Um, you know, are some of these questions so fundamental to the concept of nationhood and citizenship that? in in sort of putting off this these national battles and and creating these two centers of of a bunch of states right on each side two centers of power over the left and the right um and encouraging people to sort into those directions i mean what what's the what's the end state here um what i mean don't don't you fear that ultimately that that must rent the house apart eventually yeah well yes and no um i actually think that this is the way to turn the temperature down um, the right has been, for the past, you know, as, as long as I can remember, has wanted, has hoped that it can live in this, you know, don't tread on me, which means leave me alone attitude. It has seen that that does not work. The left, in principle, as it is structured now psychologically, cannot relent on this expansive imperialism that it has to go to every school district, to get into every household, to talk about sexuality, to talk about race, etc. It's an, it's a psychological necessity of what the left is now. And so the way to turn the temperature down is by having spaces that are unconquerable because it will never be through, you know, just convincing the left that, um, you know, you guys need to take the take your foot off the gas pedal that you've been mashing down for the past 10 years. Um, it'll be because they see that, you know, this line of attack isn't working and there's going to be a backlash from the right. So I actually think, as I say, that, that this will turn down the temperature. They have contempt for the right. And the right in many ways deserves their contempt because they have been successful over and over and over again. And that tickles their fancy to think that, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, the right, excuse me, the left never would have thought like they did after Obama leaves the White House, that like this country is locked down. It's their, their mania, their irrationality on these questions is because of their successes. And the way to stop that success is, is to actually have genuine barricades on our side that prevent their expansion. That I think will be, you know, one way that the temperature is, is, is cooled off. Um, I've noticed that, and I've noticed this over time uh, talking to you, not just on this podcast, but um, the word humiliation and contempt, those two words 
factor large in, in sort of um, how you think about the political landscape, what would you say is the importance of using? Because that's not those aren't terms that you often hear, like humiliating, for example, the other side. Um, that's not a term. Even even people are more used, likely to say things like enemies versus opponents, but not humiliation. So why why do you use why do you use the words contempt and humiliation so often? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the left has perfected humiliation. Uh, it, is a, it is a core of their power uh, right now. I think it can go away. Uh, but the core is to find you, you dissident thinker. And you're not, you know, you're not a special person. You're not, you're not devoting your life to this. You are just a normal American who has opinions outside of the mainstream. And the core of the left psychological transformation of the nation has been to find you, to isolate you, and to feel how weak you are, to feel that you are a nothing. And the only way that you can feel like a something is if you take on our opinions, in which case there are all these benefits open. And the way to uh, uh, you deploy that psychology is by humiliating you, by showing you that like, if you dare think like this, we will take everything from you. We will deploy our dogs. We will deploy our activists on your house, at your place of employment, on your friends. Your friends will turn away from you because you have wrong things. That is how humiliation works in our contemporary uh, political uh, um, uh, uh, circumstance. So I think that uh, the, the reverse of that is by encouraging people to think in a freer way, by which I mean to have uh, for them uh, support, uh, to not shoot the right that is to your right relentlessly in the back, um, and to protect them from this kind of humiliation. On the other hand, to, to reverse this, I think that there is a great deal of uh, a lot, there's a lot of disgusting people in any country, but uh, there are a lot of people who have made a lot of money exploiting this system, who have hurt a lot of people uh, using this system, using this psychology, and they should be exposed and humiliated in their own turn uh, to get them to stop and as a warning to others that like, if this keeps going on, it's not going to be a pleasant circumstance. Contempt is different. Uh, contempt means that um, you no longer have respect for, for, for something or somebody. Um, you think that it's beneath your regard. And that is a, another psychological attitude that I want the right more and more to have vis-a-vis uh, -vis all of the national institutions that claim uh, to govern you. The easiest example is... Um, and, and I think that the right is kind of halfway there, are the major press organs on the left. To have contempt for them means that they have no spiritual power over you. They're beneath your regard. You know that they are full of small, fraudulent people who are running some kind of hustle while claiming to be you know, moral and saviors. And I want us to accept these kinds of terms because I think that that's actually closer to the real psychology of politics rather than just talking about institutions or economics or something like that. You know, it, it seems to me that part of what you're saying about having contempt for these institutions, you know, that the harder part is not to have contempt for the New York times. Right. Um, I think, as you say, Republicans are yeah, Republican politicians are halfway there. The Republican base has been there. I mean, 
for a decade. Um, the, the harder part would be to have contempt for the institutions that are actually connected to real honors. Um, I really like how Spencer Clavin talks and, and writes about this, um, that are connected to the real honors that our society bestows, right? Um, are we at the point, for example, where Republicans, independents, people who are generally against uh, the ideology that has become the reigning ideology in these institutions start to choose not to send their kids to Harvard, right? I mean, that's a much more difficult question than, you know, laughing about the fact that the New York Times wrote a profile on Chris Rufo, right? Like, um, that seems to me to be the an important sort of advancement um, for the right, but but nevertheless, a much easier one than when you're talking about, you know, you, you have kids, like, what are your kids' futures going to be without attachment to these institutions um, for which you have contempt, and I think rightfully have contempt. So how would you advise people, um, young people at this juncture, let's say they're, you know, conservatives, a 16-year-old boy in high school um, who has the the grades and and the, the scores to apply and, and have a shot at some of these incredibly elite institutions that still do pipeline people into top positions all over in virtually every industry in this nation. What's your advice to that 16-year-old young man? Um, do you forego those institutions and the honors that come with them um, because they have, you know, essentially been hollowed out and turned into something that has all of the honors, but none of the the substance of for which the honors were once bestowed? Um, what's the alternative? And then, uh, you know, what do you do? What What is your advice to that, to that young man? Well, I actually think that the, the, the more we become, uh, a psychologically a regional country, the less there will be a pull on some of those institutions to attract us. So, for example, um, you know, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, the posh thing to do was, you know, you go to a top school and then you move to New York or San Francisco or uh, whatever. As those places become more and more rotten, uh, you don't you less and less need that pipeline of going to an elite school to find the elite job in one of those cities because you don't want to go there. And I encourage people more and more to stay in their state or to stay in their region. Um, the talent talent should not be pulled off, siphoned off to these big rotting cities. Um, so that's that's a partial answer, but that's not enough. Look. This is one of these difficult questions. I mean, what if you have a kid that really does belong at MIT and really does need to be with the best, best mathematicians in the world? Well, you know, they, they should go, I still think. On the other hand, um, when you look at some of these, you know, recent statistics about admissions, you saw this. There was some girl who was from like a white Midwestern middle class family who had perfect scores on everything. And because she's not diverse, did not get in. So I actually think that another element of this is that the hope of getting in to one of these institutions uh, will become dampened because it'll become more and more evident to people uh, as they see that you are just not getting in because of the color of your skin. Those institutions are not for you uh, any longer. You being, you know, a person that deserves to be there by merit alone. Um, but look... You know, it's it, it's hard to stop these kinds of things. 
it's hard to it's it's hard to persuade every parent, you know, don't send your kid to Harvard and maybe they should if especially if they're going to study a hard science and do something, you know, like that. They do belong there. I think over time the the reputation of these places, the reasons to go there, to want to attend there, uh are are going to attenuate more and more. Yeah, it's um it's one of those things where I've I've gotten more deeply cynical over time, um, but perhaps unjustly, I don't know. But the shorthand that I used um, when we had Aaron Sibarium on the podcast was planes falling out of the sky, right? Um, if if you hire your pilots on diversity metrics rather than competence, you would expect to see over time plane crashes go up, right? Um, as pilots make errors. Uh, so... The, the rate of, and, and somebody recently argued this to me, and it was really depressing because I was like, okay, there has to be some fi- final barrier, just like um, ultimately in the Soviet Union, right? There was, or, or um, in, in Chernobyl, where they had to, you know, I think they really showed that well in a series that they did on Chernobyl, where you, at some point you're reporting the political number. At some point, the, ev- the uh, like sort of edifice of falsity meets reality. Um, but it can take a very long time for that to happen. Right. Um, and, and in my examples of the the plane falling out of the sky, right. What do we have one, you know, sort of air disaster for an American airline every 10 years or, or, or whatever. I don't actually know the statistics on airlines, but let's say for the sake of, of um, argument, it's, it's one airline disaster a year. What percentage of those are due to pilot error? Okay. That's already, you know, maybe it's half, maybe it's a quarter. I don't know. Right. Um, versus mechanical failure. And then, you know, does that get associated immediately with the policies of how pilots are hired? You know, that could take that could take a very, very long time. And similarly, like in a big law firm, for example, yeah, the quality, they just dropped the LSAT, um, or at least the ABA is now encouraging law schools to drop the LSAT as an admission requirement. It's going to take quite some time before the quality of new associates suffers in a way that's actually pegged to the policy that created it, right? If that happens 10, 20 years down the line, you know, what, I guess, how long do you think this is going to take to actually associate some of these, um, you know, hollowing out of the meritocracy with the inevitable results of doing that? Because it seems to me it won't be a one-to-one, very simple kind of line that people can draw and say, oh, well, we changed the policy and the next year the planes fell out of the sky. And more importantly, the, the the regime will do everything to suppress any kind of evidence that points to the truth of that, uh, if that's the case, uh, because um, that is what the regime is. I mean, the, the, the regime has become basically um, anti-white hatred. Um, it's said in various forms, they like to say it sometimes, they like to pretend like that's not true sometimes. I mean, it's ambiguous. It's not a very popular thing to run on after all. But I think that that's regrettably become its core. And so it's not going to uh, – nobody's going to admit what the real problem is. And as you say, Inez, by the time that anybody sorts through it, you know, these things have happened. And the problem is, you know, especially in, for example, the sciences, um, you need – a pipeline of graduate students who learn from their professors, who renew the generations and who push scientific progress further and further. Uh, that's a steady process that, you know, once you interrupt it, it's very hard 
to recreate and push forward if the previous generation is not up to snuff. So it's very dangerous. I suspect that it's still, I don't mean to, you know, overemphasize, over, um, overplay this kind of state strategy, but I just see that there is space there still for university departments, for corporations to do real scientific research, for them to hire based on merit alone, uh, and wherever the cards fall is where they fall. Um, so I still think that that's one of these things that if we start talking about it, there is a political victory to be had there that Americans still believe in competence. You know, the, the generations of Americans that are alive right now are still used to, you know, good supply chains, good roads, bridges don't just collapse. There is always some kind of medical scientific innovations. And to start speaking about that directly, publicly, without any shame, that like this is, you know, the, the left, you know, may, may stand for a lot of moral things that maybe we disagree with, but the one place that we will absolutely not compromise on is competence. That's still a political card that has not been played fully. It's been danced around at the edges, but has not been uh, uh, presented in a full-throated way. Yeah, I, I actually find myself largely agreeing with you. I think that's the last and that last answer you really convinced me about the state's uh, the state's thesis. We really do need a place for competence and that'll provide the the thing that without Florida, for example, there there would have been not been a counterpoint to how to deal with COVID, right? Um there would have not been a control group, a um, you know, a baseline against which to measure. And because Florida was able to, in, under you know, good political leadership, was able to carve out a space for that. Now, I think you do have a lot of people comparing these things and looking at the numbers in New York and Florida and saying, you know, look, they they didn't have any like larger excess death from this pandemic in Florida, and yet they did not suffer all these other consequences that, for example, in New York we we did right. So, I, I, I you finally convinced me in in this this final about the importance of of having a baseline for competence, meritocracy, um, and and uh, all, all the things that we've come to expect from the American way of life. Uh, Arthur Millick, thank you so much for, for coming on High Noon. Um, you can find more of Arthur's work and that of his compatriots over at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.